You're listening to The Real Wealth Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. Becoming a doctor is certainly a difficult goal to achieve, but once you do it, you can help a lot of people become healthy while making a healthy paycheck, but it can also be extremely stressful and demanding. Well, our guest today decided to switch careers from practicing medicine to investing in real estate. I'm Kathy Fetke, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Dr. Patricia Redhawk was born and raised in the San Francisco Bay Area. She attended Temple University School of Medicine in Philadelphia to become a family physician. And she currently lives with her wife and kids in the Pacific Northwest. And she's here with us today on The Real Wealth Show to tell us why she left the field of medicine to invest in real estate instead. Well, Dr. Redhawk, welcome to The Real Wealth Show. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, what a year. Boy, all right. Well, let's, there's so much we can talk about, but let's dive into the most basic question, which is how did you go from being a doctor to being a real estate investor? And are you doing both? Yeah, uh, I'm not doing both. I stopped practicing medicine in 2010. I was a family medicine physician working in Philadelphia. Um, and I'm not doing both. And, and it's not any kind of secret why I left medicine. It, it, um, you know, oftentimes we, we get into pathways where the career is separate from the job. Um, and when I got into the brass tacks of the job, I realized it really wasn't the kind of fit that I was looking for for my life. Um, I think the American healthcare system is broken. And, and truthfully, Kathy, I was unwilling to put really the best years of my life into that. Mm -hmm. um, along the way, I decided that I really wanted a um, kind of a different kind of life than practicing medicine would necessarily provide me. Uh, I wanted more time. I wanted more control over my time. Um, I wanted greater flexibility um, and greater security as well. Um, and it took me a couple years to transition from stopping my medical practice to embracing fully real estate investing. Um, uh, but I'm so happy I did because um, real estate investment has really allowed me to live exactly the kind of life that I would want for myself. You know, I've, I've been able to reverse engineer what the perfect day looks like for me. And, and I was able to achieve those things, you know, more security, more control, more time. Um, and, you know, once your monthly expenses are covered by your monthly income from your, you know, rental portfolio, then you, um, then you really allow the opportunity to craft a, a, a very different kind of life for yourself. So um, I, it's, I just look back. It's so interesting just hearing you speak because becoming a doctor is, I mean, that's a great goal, right? And one that most people would dream of and is almost a certainty to achieving wealth. Uh, but what goes with that, a lot of people don't understand. We have a friend who worked in ER and it took such a toll on him, uh, just mm -hmm everything that goes on in ER that he, he got a little tainted towards life. He had to step away from it just to be a human and feel like he was human again. Um, yeah, it, it's painful in, in many ways. And, and I have many physician friends who, um, you know, we're, we're recording this in the era of, of coronavirus and looking at sort of a, another sh pandemic shutdown. I have friends who are physicians and um, it's an extremely hard time for them. And for my nursing friends as well. Um, I, and I, but I think you're right. It, it um, it's an incredibly um, heartbreaking time to be in healthcare. 
Um, and while I miss the patient care aspect, um, I love being involved with people's lives and helping them in, in really very important ways. Um, I still do that as a real estate investor, but you know, it's a whole different, whole different ball of wax. Well, you don't have the freedom really as a doctor. I, I do yeah. have, and I'll just, we'll get back onto real estate, but we have two family members who wanted to focus more on holistic. We have uh, a Fetke in Australia who discovered that there was a connection between sugar and cancer. And when he wrote a book on that and started speaking about it, he lost his license. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so very interesting. And then he regained it, they apologized, but it, it's gotta be tough if you know something and aren't allowed to do it. <laughs> True, and and I think too, to circling back to how you started it, it it's, um, it is a certainty to to um, to have steady income, et cetera, but it it does come with quite a high price to pay, and and really came down to it. One day, I remember this this epiphany where I thought to myself, I'm I'm looking at the senior members, uh, other physicians in my practice, and I realized that I was low on the totem pole, but their day was looking just like mine, which is everybody is running late by 10 a.m. Uh, and nobody can take an hour for lunch because everybody's on the phone arguing with the insurance companies and managed care companies to do their job. You can't take a random hour or two off in the afternoon just to go watch your kids play ball or something like that. And, you know, as women, um, I'll tell you, you, you go home at the end of the day, you're, you're parenting, you're, you're, you're being a partner, you're cooking, you're running your household, everybody quiets down about nine o'clock, and then you're doing charting and documentation and paperwork and until well into the wee hours. I'll tell you, every primary care physician I know does that. Wow. Um, and that's the kind of thing where I thought, I, 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 can't, I, I, it, I can't live my life like this. I, mm -hmm. It, it um, precluded me from living my most authentic life, uh, of being the kind of parent I wanted to be, of living the kind of life of, of adventure, of, of um, outreach, and, and sharing with friends and family and, and exploring the world and embracing my adventurous self. And it just wasn't going to align well with that. So I had to find something else. And, and thank goodness, I had been exposed to real estate investing early on in my life. And um, it took me a couple years after I stopped practicing medicine to come back to it. But um, I'm all in now. You know, I have been for a few years now. So it's going very well. And I don't intend to, to go anywhere soon, except for uh, maybe Malibu for surfing. <laughs> Well, it, it's really amazing to think that for me growing up, if you wanted to become wealthy, you become an attorney or a doctor and sure. the, the barrier to become that was so high, right? You know, the, the, the hoops that you had to jump over, you know, to get there. Um, it was so, so intense. And then you look mm -hmm. at, um, at real estate and the barrier to entry is it's, it's just really, it's available to anyone. That's what got that's what got my interest is when I started interviewing people, these were kids in their 20s that had never gone to college, started right. in high school, and were already retired without an education. It's just exactly. phenomenal. So and, and speak it to the other end too, because I'm a woman in my mid-50s and I often meet other other women in my same age. They might be single, they might be still married, physicians or dentists, something like that, and they have um, not planned appropriately for their retirement. Um, and so to take it to the other um, end of the, the spectrum, real estate investment is one of those things that allows you to 
turbocharge your retirement uh, portfolio so that you don't have to worry about how you're going to live. And, you know, as you well know, women have additional challenges um, as a senior citizens than, than men do. We live longer than male partners if you have one. We typically will always use more healthcare dollars in our retirement. Uh, we've typically also been underinvested um, in, in uh, whatever it is, stock market or non-stock market, whatever. And on top of that, typically over the course of our working life, we have earned fewer dollars, um, you know, 72, 75 cents to uh, every man's $1. So that means all those matching dollars, if you had a corporate job, don't exist for you at the same level as well. So we need so much more to, um, to provide for us out of our retirement income. Real estate is the one thing I know of that can do that, whether, you know, your early 20s or in your mid 50s. Um, but real estate is the one thing that can turn it around for so I'm a huge believer. Absolutely. There, there doesn't appear to be a glass ceiling in real estate. I would agree. Yeah, it's okay. true. And did you find uh, the pay difference to be true in, in uh, your field as well? In um, uh, no, actually, sadly, um, there have been a series of studies that have come out that have indicated that um, women uh, are actually earning fewer dollars as a physician. And even when they controlled for things like experience and um, specialties, et cetera, still find that, that women are underperforming um, or rather under earning uh, their male counterparts who are also physicians. So that was, that was um, kind of an eye opener for me. I, I somehow had thought that we all go through the training. We all go through um, uh, the many, many years, et cetera. Um, and it's a very arduous training process. We all do the same amount of work. So why is it that men are, are compensated more? Wow. You know, question. Yeah. So it, that was a heartbreaking. So I, I, but I have that conversation with women physicians and, and, and orthodontists and dentists to reach out to me and say, you know, I, I didn't realize this. My colleagues are making more than I do. It's, <laughs> right. it's yeah. like, Hopefully yeah. that changes. I mean, just in our, in our age group, I'm in a similar age as you, um, there were very few outspoken real estate investor women uh, that I know of. I mean, you know, they were probably behind the scenes, very much, very active in the business. I think um, couples, you know, families owning rental properties and apartments, but uh, women mm -hmm. weren't out talking about it so much. Uh, I feel like in many ways, I was a trailblazer and you too. So um, so what did it take to kind of, again, trailblaze to, to be different than other females? <laughs> um, well, you know, I think... I, I think I realized um, that I sort of have been um, kind of walking through otherwise closed doors my whole life. Um, and I, I'm not even sure why that is or, or how that is. I, I you know, was raised by a single mom and, um, and I saw her do a lot of things that were um, sort of atypical for women who had grown up during sort of the World War II generation. Um, but she she did what she had to do to, to make a life for us. And, and, and I think I got the message that um, nobody, you know, you shouldn't be waiting around for Prince Charming, um, that you really need to, to make your own decisions and move forward on your own. And later on, as I grew up and, and matured, I realized as a gay woman, uh, there was not going to be any Prince Charming, or maybe I needed to be my own Prince Charming. Um, and so, you know, I, there was never, um, 
getting married or something like somebody else uh, uh, being a part of a financial picture was never part of my my um, understanding of myself early on. Um, and so I think that um, the things that I was naturally drawn to do um, early on, like I was one of the first little girls to play little league baseball in, in the United States. Um, wow. And I was, the, I was the second girl in California to play little league baseball, you know, and at the, like, I look back at doing that. I think I was maybe 11 or 12. I, I can't believe I did that, you know? Um, and I've done other sort of things that were atypical for, for women. I want to, I put myself through college and and um, and worked full time in construction during the day and went to school at night and et cetera. But I also knew I needed more money to go to university to, to transfer. Um, and so I joined the California Army National Guard and I used the GI Bill. And, you know, that's not something typically that, that, that a lot of women are necessarily attracted to or, or see it as an option. Um, but I got to tell you, look, looking back now at my life, I realized my experiences in typically male dominated fields, construction, the military, medicine, have served me well in so many ways um, that uh, it just makes opening doors up now even easier, you know, having the confidence of, of uh, the previous experiences. So um, I, I think that is sort of a roundabout answer, but um, I have no specific thing I can point to. It's just I have an adventurous kind of can-do spirit and, and went where I wanted to go. Awesome. Yeah. The construction field is really interesting. It is, uh, I mean, we've, we've had very few female contractors and I just, I wonder why we have, we have two within our network that are excellent at what they do. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. But how did you get into construction? Um, basically here's the, the short story. It's, it's not too glamorous. I was in a head on collision in my very early twenties. Um, and, uh, it took a long, I had a long rehab period to get myself back on my feet. Um, a woman, um, turned into me as she was making a left-hand turn. Um, and I remember I was having, um, tacos, um, with friends of mine, you know, two women who I know to this day, and we've known each other all, all our lives. And they're saying, well, gee, what are you going to do now, you know, now that I, I um, uh, you know, had, had survived my, my injuries and stuff like that? like, well, you know, I'm, I'll go to night school. The junior college, you know, system is great in California. And I said, I don't know. And then one of my friends says, well, you know, men always make more money than women. What do men do? And we just kind of like were brainstorming and, and we came across construction and I had taken <laughs> drafting. And um, yeah, you know, we're like 19, 20 years old, Kathy, we're not super bright here. Uh, but I had taken drafting while I was in college, or excuse me, while I was in high school, and also had done uh, uh, drafting in, in the military, in the in the Army National Guard. And I thought, that is probably a skill I can parlay. I actually know how to build a house because I've done it on paper and drawn it a million times. I knew the names of things. I knew the codes, et cetera, because I had been drawing them. So I um, cold called uh, women general contractors and got, my got, got myself a job with one and uh, and it worked out great and that's how I literally got into it it's because I could draw and draft um, and uh, I worked with her and and kind of furthered my experience and uh, went on to become a general contractor myself and um, I have to say I just recently moved to Oregon and I think I'll be getting an, another GC license here as well and and to your point about why there aren't more women doing it I think women are hardwired to do well in, as a general contractor yeah, oh, absolutely. 
you know, anybody can raise kids and get Thanksgiving on a table for everybody. <laughs> you know, we are born multitaskers, right? Well, so, I haven't made a Thanksgiving dinner in years, but uh, you know what? Who makes it? Whole Foods. They do a great job. I, I leave it to them. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I, you know, I think that women are, are fantastic uh, general contractors when they when they when they do it because they um, for the things that I think that make women successful investors um, as well is that we nurture and develop relationships and all business is about relationship. I, when I speak to other groups, I say this all the time. It doesn't even matter what your industry is. All business is about relationship, but also our ability to multitask is fantastic. Our ability to communicate. That's the number one complaint clients have of their general contractors to say that the communication skills were crap mm -hmm. and women are great at that. And I feel like you know, we um, we already bring so many fantastic skills to the table, just how we're socialized. And for those women who choose to to go into construction and become general contractors, I've never known one to not be successful at doing that. So I applaud yeah. any any of them who's doing that as well. I just I just feel like uh, that is that is something I hope is encouraged because yeah, I agree. I, and the detail, the detail and follow up and schedule. I I just seems like a great fit. And it is, and it's, and it speaks to our, I think our, our innate gifts in many ways. Yeah. All right. So tell me about your, you know, your first investment and what kind of assets you've been investing in since. Sure. Uh, my first investment is great because, um, I, you know, those of us who have been in, in, in this field for a while, remember um, those numerous fabulous infomercials with Carlton sheets and, uh, <laughs> For, for those, I know I'm taking us back. For those of you who have not seen it, basically it was these, Carlton was a very successful investor and, and investment educator. And he would have these um, interviews with everyday folks who had taken his course and, and applied it and, and made great money. And the, the infomercials always had like the palm trees in the background. It was very, um, it was very enticing. And, and lots of folks spent a lot of money. I actually never bought never bought the course, but I will say this, I watched enough infomercials that I understood what it is that they were doing. And so um, I w uh, w talked to a former partner and I said, hey, I think we should do this. And, and here's why and kind of explain it out to her. And, and she said, sure, I think this is a good idea. She was um, a resident physician at the time, finishing up her training. Um, I was uh, at home being a stay-at-home mom with our infant son. And I started to mention it to folks that I, what I was interested in doing um, and basically what is now the Burr strategy. Um, and uh, and a friend said, hey, you know what? A childhood friend of mine is selling uh, her childhood home. It's in South Philadelphia. Are you interested? It needs some work. And I'm like, yeah, let's go take a look at it. He's a contractor himself and, and grew up in the neighborhood. And we went and took a look at it. And it needed to be cleaned up and updated, but not super bad. It wasn't a full gut rehab, just a, a good moderate size rehab. At the time, the comps in the area, it was a row house in South Philly, two bedrooms, one bath. And the comps at the time were about $75,000, but she only wanted 40K for the house. Wow. We wrote up the contract. <laughs> That's a deal. For, right? We wrote up the contract for 75K. Um, and I got $35,000 back at closing for wow. rehab work. So the oh. rehab basically paid for itself. And it was a classic no money down because we borrowed four, four, five, six thousand dollars or something from my partner's IRA on one day. 
Um, and then I paid it back the next day because we got so much back at closing and the, the money that we got back for re repairs completely took care of the rehab. And we got a tenant and we, we were talking about flipping it, but then 2008 occurred and we thought, all right, let's just hold it as a long-term rental. And sure enough, and we just sold it a couple of years ago for maybe 125. Okay. And it kind of paid for itself in the beginning and paid for itself along the way too. That was my first deal. Classic no money down deal. I can't believe it. And most of it I learned on the back of Carlton Sheets infomercials. <laughs> <laughs> so some value there. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Yeah. All right. Now, though, um, indeed. So I continue to focus uh, my efforts on, on residential. Um, and uh, I used to live in Philadelphia. My family and I have recently moved to Oregon, uh, but still focused on residential. However, I'm no longer burring. I, I, um, uh, I'm a little concerned about um, the future in terms of commercial lending, um, yeah. inflation and deflation, um, the buying power of the dollar and things like that. So I'm, I'm concerned for some of the macroeconomic pictures. And I don't think Burr is actually an, uh, all that viable a play right now overall. So I'm really focusing on a couple of things. One is uh, I'm buying in the Portland area, so I'm buying newer construction houses and, and uh, renting them out to millennial professionals by the room. Um, and I'm taking a page out of uh, uh, a couple of folks who, who um, do this, who do student housing the same way. Um, and there's another guy in Seattle who's doing this um, in his market at a higher end. But these are millennial professionals who, you know, can live in a bedroom of a new house with, you know, all the amenities included, utilities included, and maid service, et cetera. Um, and, it's, uh, and it's a great cash flow play. So I'm doing that in the Portland market. Wow. Um, and then, yeah. And, and which is a nice way to go because, you know, you, you know, when you have rentals, you know what it's like. You're always going to, people say you always want to hold out a certain percentage for vacancies and, and repairs and things like that. And so much nicer. There's a huge demand for this in very select markets, Seattle being one, Portland being one, San Francisco, LA, Austin, San Antonio, places where there are tech hubs. And there are millennial professionals who don't want to, you know, pay 22, 2,500 bucks a month to live. Uh, you know, that's living plus utilities and, and kind of everything else where they can live and, and share a house with others. And it's a new house. It's a beautiful house. Um, and all that stuff is included. And it's less what they would pay if they were living on their own. Oh. Um, and so that particular tactic is going to is going to work for the young millennial professional who who um, has has might be making six figures or or maybe ninety k to kind of one fifteen and you know they could buy a house if they wanted to um, but not necessarily in that place in their life um, and uh, but they're looking for a higher quality living experience and uh, and so that's a that's a, what I'm focusing on the next couple of years. Do you um, self manage? I do. These ones I do, yes. Um, and I find that I'm not typically a fan of self-managing and, and other my other rental portfolio, I, I have property managers in place. Um, but this is a more of a, a high-touch kind of uh, tactic that I want to make sure that I'm, I'm uh, staying very close to it. So, Are you offering it furnished? Yes. So it's furnished. So it's like a, basically a hotel room within a house. Exactly. And everything. So you've got you know, the ESPN and Apple TV and Hulu and Showtime and blah, 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 uh, weekly made service, um, supplying paper products and household soaps, that kind of thing. And it's all just in utilities are included. And it's all just, you know, one, one check every month for them. And it's a, 
it's a nice cash flow play. Yeah, because it's not that easy to cash flow in Portland. So that's one way to do it. Yeah, that yeah, and Airbnb is for sure. Indeed. And, and this is one of those um, strategies that is only going to work in basically very expensive markets mm -hmm. and, and primarily those markets that are driven by the tech industry. Yeah. Uh, of course, Berlin, Seattle, San Francisco, Silicon Valley, um, areas that, are, that have um, a lot of young folks who, who make good money, um, but that's not necessarily interested in buying a house at this time. So, How do you find your tenants for that? Um, at this point, word of mouth, um, there's been a lot of interest. Uh, yeah. And so, um, it's a lot a of friend tells a friend or something and yeah, yeah, huh? exactly. So nice way I to go. And I'm also go into corporations and, uh, tell them you've got housing available or something. Yeah. And of course I always reach out to, uh, the medical center as well, because, you know, being a physician, I want resident physicians to, to have, um, not that they're making six figures, but I want them to have quality places to live too. And so mm -hmm. I, I do that as sort of a giving back to my medical community. So, mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm going big in on this. So 2021, I'm, I'm focused uh, on that in terms of my sticks and bricks acquisitions. Um, but my, my investment portfolio overall also includes a lot of buying and selling of notes, um, which I think is an important ongoing play as well. So, those are oh yeah, ones. that's a great business. It's boy, if you understand calculators, <laughs> first you, can, <laughs> you can do so well uh, just in yeah. selling a note at a let's see, how does it work at a discount? At a discount. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, it, and what's nice is it's it's that set it and forget it, right? You know, yeah. because you know, nobody's calling me about a drippy faucet or, you yeah. know, a sprinkler head that's broken. Um, they're just making their mortgage payments every month. And uh, that's a real nice, a real nice play. And of course, you know, when you buy a note, um, it maybe the interest rate, you would be say 8% yield to maturity, right? So if you're going to um, have that note um, for the 15, 16, 17 years that might be left on it, then you would make 18, eight, maybe 8% 8 yield to maturity. But the reality is, as you well know, most mortgages refinance at about the seven and a half year mark. Mm -hmm. So if I'm buying a, a, a note, a seller finance note from mom and pop, um, you know, and it's eight, it's technically 8% yield to maturity if I hang on to it that long. But, you know, six months or so after I've owned the note, I'll call the borrower and say, hey, can I help you figure out how to refinance? Because you could get into something a lot cheaper. Mm. And as soon as they do that and pay me off sooner, my yield goes up because, it, you know, it's that um, it's the time value of money. So even though initially it looks like an 8% yield to maturity, if I held it the whole time, the reality is as soon as the borrower uh, refinances uh, and cashes me out, um, my return on investment is double digits. You could double, triple, quadruple. Yeah. Uh, wow. Investment. So, so you buy existing money. It's knowing the math. So well, that's it. It's the math yeah. that not everybody loves math, but um, and I've taken so many note <laughs> classes, and that's just one thing that I've always wanted to do. I mean, we do private lending, but uh, right. I, I know there's a way to make a lot more than the 8%, 10%, 12%. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Um, that'll no, be my future career. Uh, <laughs> well, I do private lending as well. So yeah. I, I completely appreciate your, your perspective on that. And I feel like given all the finance that I'm involved in, I feel like I could barely make change when I'm at the store. But so it's, I have to laugh at the, the irony. <laughs> also, then anyone could do, well, I'm, I'm pretty sure you're a smart cookie. So, um, you know, not, smart not cookie, everyone. Smart cookie to be. <laughs> not everyone likes math. 
<laughs> with real estate, you know, with, with rentals, it's just kind of uh, pretty straightforward, especially when you have a property manager taking care of things. Very true. But um, yeah, so what would you say is next for you? Are you concerned at all about uh, any economic changes or um, change in leadership in the country? Or are you not so worried about that? Well, I got to tell you, I uh, the leadership doesn't, um, change of leadership doesn't concern me. Um, and I think the um, the markets have between the, I think that change of leadership as well as the recent news about vaccines have, have, um, have been quite buoyant. Um, I think one of the things that the markets have taken into account in terms of the, the political side of the house is the fact that, uh, president elect Biden will be um, moving into a divided government. So, you know, it's mm -hmm. not the triple threat. It's not democratic control of all three entities. And I think that, um, that markets like that. Markets uh, love that. Yeah. Gridlock is Good for the stock market. Absolutely. And so I think that, and we can certainly, as in real estate investors, can take a page out of that. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't really worry about the administration um, piece so much. I'll tell you, though, I am quite concerned on a much more of an macroeconomic basis. Um, so I'm a big believer in, in education, uh, you know, as a physician, I was trained to constantly to maintain excellence in my field. I, I needed to be reading and studying and literally every week. I still do that. I carry that with me now. And, and I, I consume an enormous amount of educational material every week and not just in real estate in, investing, but macroeconomics and in, in, uh, uh, global economies, et cetera, um, currency situations. And one of the things I'm, I'm concerned about is that I, I, you know, we're printing money like no one ever took an econ 101 class. And so, <laughs> you know, how is that going to come back around? You know, I, and understanding sort of the difference between inflation and deflation and the fact that we'll probably see both um, and how to best prepare um, my family's portfolio and, and my investment partners that I work with. And, um, and so one of the things I, I, teach about as well as as talk to when I when I'm presenting is the idea of having both an offensive and a defensive portfolio you really need to, to have both um, and uh, you know and have those um, hold those assets that do well during um, market declines and it's all the classic stuff you know precious metals you know that kind of thing um, high cash value, whole life insurance, if that's a, a play that, that folks are interested in. And, and then on, on the more offensive side, being well, for me, being well diversified within the real estate investment um, uh, uh, arena, including private money lending, the, the notes, holding sticks and bricks, et cetera, um, optimizing my tax picture as well. And so I feel like regardless of which way the, the economy goes, I, I'm well diversified and, and I'm balanced. And like I mentioned, I, I'm no longer doing really the Burr strategy because I think that's that's a tactic that is best used during an, an upswing in the market cycle. Um, I think we're at the top. Some some markets are already sort of declining. And so I'm preparing for, for a decline. And while I don't think we're going to see sort of the massive amount of, of foreclosures like we did in 2008 and in the wake of the Great Recession, I, I still think that there are some fundamental issues with our, our economy that, that even before COVID. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm concerned about that. And um, I'm not as, um, I, I, I'm being very careful and very disciplined um, with what tactics I'm embracing. So I'm, 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 I feel like I'm being much more conservative. I want to 
I want to make sure, for instance, we all know this, once a, uh, once a markets start to tank, commercial lending is one of the things that clam up. So it doesn't matter if interest rates are zero. The reality is if nobody's lending, you can't still can't get that kind of mortgage. So I'm, I'm really concerned about um, sort of the larger picture and, uh, and sort of the macroeconomic um, picture. I don't know how we're going to get ourselves out of this. Um, and, and I listened to Ray Dalio. I listened to Warren Buffett. And... Um, you know, Robert Kiyosaki and, and uh, you know, and James Rickards and, and, uh, and even Harry Dent and just trying to get a handle on what is the broader picture, what might that look like? And, and I have tremendous concern, I think, like lots of folks. But I will say this, Kathy, I am still investing, you know, and I'm a sailor. So what I tell people is it doesn't matter which way the wind blows. I set my sails accordingly and I still make forward progress. And that's how I would encourage other investors to, to consider too. Not every tactic works at all the time. Some tactics work better at different points in the market cycle. Figure out where you are, sort of plan for the worst and hope for the best and, and plan and execute. But don't sit on the sidelines. There's plenty of opportunity. Yeah, you've got to stress test your investments. They need to, you know, don't only show the pro forma with rents going up. It, Absolutely. Or, or continued appreciation. I mean, we just don't know. We just exactly. don't know. So look for the solid cash flow deals that, oh, mm-hmm. as you know, you said that you've been um, uh, listening to the Real Well Show for a while. And I think you Absolutely. that. Yeah. How did oh, you find long- us? Um, actually, it was my mom. She um, so uh, you and I, if folks don't know, you and I are both from the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and my mom used to listen to you and Jim Jorgensen on the radio. <laughs> and so, and for anybody who's you know been paying attention, but she would talk to me, this Kathy lady. She really seemed to know what she's doing. I'm like, yep. So, Aww. so it was actually my mom who introduced me a long time ago. Oh, maybe she was listening to KSFO. That's really she was cool. absolutely yeah. uh, AM radio in the kitchen. Absolutely. Oh yeah, that talk radio. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, I remember it indeed. So oh, yeah, I've been a fan for a long time. Oh, so yeah. glad to have you here sharing your wisdom. I uh, wish my, my mom passed away, so she would have been thrilled though if to to mm-hmm. hear me say, "Hey, guess who I spoke with today?" So oh yeah, she's listening. <laughs> no, she's she's thrilled. I'm sure. Oh, that's beautiful. All right. Well, we're going to wrap up, but um, one, one last tip with, with everything you just said of, you know, the opportunities, but also the threats and how to move forward and steer your boat through it, um, knowing storms could be coming, but you still got to get where you want to be. What's, what's some just tips or advice you would give somebody who might be a little nervous right now? Sure. Absolutely. Um, I'll circle back to the two strengths that I think, um, are sort of part of my core genius. And I would encourage anybody to figure out what their core genius is too, because that's what you bring to the party. Figure that out and own it. So my core genius is one, I, I have a scorched earth educational outlook. I, which is to say, you know, I might hear somebody on a podcast that I've never heard before. I'll write that person's name down and I'll go back online. I will find every single interview that person did. I'll I'll hear a lot of the same stories, but every interview with a different podcast gives me a more nuanced picture of this person's story. So that's what I mean about scorched earth. Once you find something you're interested in or a topic you're interested in, run it down and really know it. Um, And not just about the tactics that you're interested in, but about the much broader picture as well, because it's the... 
you know, I, I, I mine my own exposure for nuggets from other industries that I apply to real estate investing. So um, I, I encourage people um, read and study broadly and uh, also deeply. Um, and then the second thing I would encourage folks to do is, uh, you know, one of my strengths is relationships, making connections with folks. And, and, um, and I often tell people, you know, it's your, your education will allow you to see both challenges and dangers ahead, but it's your relationships that will help you capitalize on them um, and make money and keep yourself protected. And that's really the two, two tips I would say, folks, read more and start shaking more hands and, uh, and connecting with folks. Or tapping more elbows or more Zoom calls. Yeah. <laughs> or Zoom calls, exactly, exactly. Yeah. All, all business is about relationship, absolutely. Great, great stuff. Oh, it's such a pleasure to have you here. Indeed, and I'm delighted. Thank you. Thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. You can listen to this and any past episodes at realwealthshow.com.